Gary Smaby is a respected expert in many fields, from architecture to supercomputing, but the one closest to his heart is photography, especially its history. I can set the stage for those who may not know much about history of photography just by saying it is a, um, a very short history. Kevin Peterson has always loved history in all its variations, but the one closest to his heart is the colorful narrative that weaves through American politics. Everybody thought Lincoln, he was so tall and skinny that he was a little bit of a freak. But Brady thought his height was his most important asset. So he took Lincoln's picture standing up. And nobody had ever done that before. Today, these two Ollie instructors engage in a conversation about images, photographic and political, and how their dance and interplay has helped craft 200 years of American history. Welcome to In Conversation, The Voices of Ollie. Ollie, O-L-L-I, is an acronym for the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, located at and networked with the Palm Desert campus of California State, San Bernardino. Historian Kevin Peterson and photographer Gary Smaby had never met before they recorded this podcast. To their surprise, these two Ollie instructors discovered they both enjoyed careers in a highly competitive game they once played called, wait for it, High Finance. How did you get from there to here? Oh, my God. How, how much time we got here? Yeah. I started out in life, I was going to be a history professor. To be quite frank, I decided I wasn't real comfortable with the world of academia. And I discovered I really liked the world of finance. Uh, and uh, I met some investment bankers. And it looked like they made good money and had a lot of fun and had to have people breathing down their neck all the time. So I went that direction. And for 25 years, I was an investment banker. That's that. But I, I never lost my love of history and my interest in history and, and political science. So when uh, I ended up teaching at the uh, Osher at the University of Utah after I moved back to Utah, my wife and I moved to Palm Desert. I met our organization here, and here I am. You know, I, I actually uh, started a career as a photographer and quickly realized that that was not a world that one could, could make a living, or at least the kind of living I wanted to make. Right. Kind of like uh, being a kind of like being a college professor. Yeah, exactly. So. Well, and both of us ended up working for firms uh, with stellar reputations. You know, making money is nothing if you don't maintain your integrity. Right. So, you got to look at yourself in the mirror every morning. Exactly. Right? After Kevin and Gary traded a few war stories, their conversation turned to another form of combat: America's Civil War. It was there, it might be said, where history and photography first joined forces. The battlefield daguerreotypes of photographer Matthew Brady. Gary's maybe sets the state of photographic art back to then. The first photograph, permanent photograph, was 1825. And so it, it really was, by the time of the Civil War, uh, a very new um, technology, and it really was very technology dependent and chemistry dependent at that time, right. and uh, was mostly within the realm of um, the rich uh, because you needed to buy a lot of equipment um, in order to to play the game. 
And, uh, you know, the art community typically looked down on photography at that point in time and said, these are just rich people who can't draw, who can't sculpt, who can't paint. Uh, and so they, they take this magic box and they think they're producing art. And that, that opinion um, persisted for at least 100 years. And in many realms, it still does exist. The, the wartime photographs really opened up a whole new chapter for photography. I mean, before photography, nobody really knew what war was really like. They thought it was heroic, which it was at times. Uh, but it was bloody and ugly and messy and awful. And, and I think photography was the one that ushered in that knowledge. And uh, Antietam and Brady and the dead of Antietam and all that, people were really sobered by seeing that because to the public at large, that was the first time they saw, thought what. But what I think, was, you know, you think, you think about cameras, uh, all of us, were alive and conscious and disturbed by what went on in Vietnam during that period of time. And you think about the nightly news and the importance of those uh, photographers and, uh, and filmmakers that were you know, risking their lives um, to bring us information. And frankly, you know, those photojournalists are still risking their lives today, people that do that. Uh, and um, that tells you that the photograph um, whether it's moving or still, is still an incredibly important part of, you know, it's woven into our civilization now. And, and I think that's the democratization of it. Uh, while it, it, it obviously has impact, impacted people who do photography for a living, and many of those have been hurt by it, but um, and many are not going to be able to make a living doing it anymore. But in terms of uh, what the, the iPhone has done, or I speak generically of the iPhone, but smartphones in, in particular for um, really in all realms. I mean, you look at the recent um, protests and the video in Minneapolis uh, with the uh, Floyd video and the global impact that that had, um, and again, shot from a cell phone. And it's an important part of culture. Right, another aspect I thought about it was Brady also he went to uh, Gettysburg after the battle and took photos. I think it was Brady. Anyway, there's some pictures of like dead Confederates laying around, and it's been pretty much agreed. And this is about photography. People could try and send a message right. that the photographs, those photographs of these dead soldiers were probably staged because uh, corpses tend to swell up, and these were people who looked we're, we're not looking like corpses. So it's pretty much agreed that he staged those photographs. Yeah. You know, you got to bring up uh, the Holocaust and, and photographs yeah. and the importance of that to, to people who deny that it happened. And it, you know, um, that could not be staged in the way that Matthew Brady staged photographs. Those were not staged. And um, they are, again, an indelible um, record of, of, you know, what happened during that period of time. And then on the flip side of that, you got to look what Hitler did um, using it to his advantage as propaganda. And he, right. he had top filmmakers and top photographers who were right. crafting images at his direction. Um, right. So it can be used both ways. And uh, George Marshall, who was the chief of staff of the army, 
he was shocked that a lot of the soldiers and, you know, coming in really didn't know what the war was about. They kind of heard the healer, well, maybe he wasn't such a good guy and so on and so forth. But they didn't really zero in on what this war was all about. So Marshall engaged Frank Capra to make this series of films called Why We Fight. And they showed it to the soldiers when they were in training. And uh, my father told me that he, he really never realized what the war was about till he got over there, of course. And they said that these Frank Capra movies had a big had a big impact. And of course, two years later, he's landing on or three he's landing on Utah Beach in Normandy. Yeah. Right. When you mention that uh, Normandy, the um, the famous photographs of that period, Robert Capra being yeah. one of the photographers, and again the the story about how difficult it is to shoot. The fact that that um, that most of that role was destroyed as I recall, by the, by the, in the processing of it. Um, oh. And so there are very few of the pictures that actually um, were printable, the ones that he, he took during that period. And, and that's why some of the ones that, that you see are kind of grainy and a little bit out of focus. And, right. But that adds to the drama of them. But, you know, you think about the Hindenburg as an example of both right. sound, where you had sound and picture, uh, right. Both of which um, amplified each other. The sound of right. it amplified the other. Right, and it was a total surprise with the Hindenburg. Yeah, I mean the guy that took the 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 picture, the movies, thought it was just a regular landing, and all of a sudden the Hindenburg explodes into flames. And there, there you go. And as I recall, he was kind of panicky in his narration of the whole thing. Yeah, he was. And you can go back to the Zapruder film. Uh, where there were, what, 13 frames or something that, that became history. Again, you think about images that are etched on the human brain, those who have watched TV, and I, I still remember watching some of those scenes of Selma, um, and I think a lot of people in the, in the North that were either aware but not wanting to deal with it uh, finally ended up having to, to deal with the fact that um, something had to be done there. I think that people didn't realize till television came along and people like Martin Luther King came along, they realized that that life in the South was not like what they thought it was. I don't think without the visual image, I don't think it would have made as much difference. frankly. There is one word common to the vocabulary of politics and photographs, image. That confluence first began with 19th century photographer Matthew Brady and an awkward, homely candidate for president, Abe Lincoln, years before the Civil War. Kevin Peterson picks up the story. He went to New York from Illinois and he spoke. And, and the, the afternoon before he spoke, he went to Matthew Brady's studio, the leading photographer of his era, and to have his picture taken. And that was kind of unusual that somebody would do that. Everybody thought Lincoln, he was so tall and skinny that he was a little bit of a freak. Most people didn't look like Abraham Lincoln. But Brady thought his height was his most important asset. So he took Lincoln's picture standing up. And nobody had ever done that before. 
And he, the other thing he did was he combed Lincoln's hair because Lincoln's hair was always messed up, so he combed his hair. And then he, Lincoln had a long, skinny neck, and he took and he pulled his collar up, pulled Lincoln's collar up. And Lincoln said, oh, you're trying to make my neck smaller, aren't you? Which, of course, <laughs> he was. <laughs> so Lincoln was one of those who, who understood the importance of the medium and took advantage of it. So. Kennedy Nixon. Um, well, obviously, from a TV perspective, we all know what happened there with the uh, sweaty, sweaty upper lip and uh, split screen cameras and some things that haven't, you know, that that hadn't been used before. And, uh, you know, that made a difference. I mean, you, you could think back of recent elections where one statement or, you know, George Bush looking at his watch. Um, I mean, you know, in the in the days of respectable campaigns, I mean, one word or one image could could kill the chances of a uh, of a prospect. I think of um, Michael Dukakis sitting in a tank, and a photograph of him riding in a in a tank, or uh, Ed Muskie uh, shedding tears after giving a speech or whatever. I mean, in both of those cases, it really put their campaigns uh, to a stop. As I recall, anyway, I'm not a historian, but you probably know the truth on that. What you were mentioning about the Kennedy Nixon, the interesting thing about that, there were polls taken after that debate, and the people who watched it on television said that they believed that Kennedy won the debate. The people who listened to it on the radio said they thought Nixon won the debate. Yeah. yeah. That tells you something about the power of uh, images. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, was crippled by polio, and yet he was never allowed to be photographed uh, walking in his braces or being wheeled in his wheelchair. A very large part of the, of the American people did not know that he was handicapped. They're like uh, editorial cartoons of him running, and you took a picture of him walking in his braces. They just kicked you off the train and you were right. done. Now. Yeah, took so, your camera. And, you know, the, the same thing to a certain extent, correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, Kennedy. He was often in pain and in a back brace and uh, would not have, you know, been able to run a 100-yard dash, at least uh, as he was depicted as being this lively, active, you know, family participant in football games. But truth of the matter was he, he was, he had severe pain. One other thing I was going to point out, which is kind of reverse photography, was that the uh, communists, the Bolsheviks, especially in the Stalin era, they would alter photographs. So if there's a picture of Stalin walking down the street with some guy who'd suddenly found fallen out of favor and ended up in the, in, in, uh, the gulag someplace, those phot- photographs would be doctored and they would take that person out of the photograph. Yeah. So this is like reverse photography, yeah. right? So. And now anyway. anybody anybody can do that. And you know, the the whole issue of trusting the photographic image is a very real one. Um, and yeah. you know, th- there isn't an image that I shoot now that isn't um, significantly processed image processed. I can tell you that almost any picture today can be faked. And that's that's disturbing. 
That's a that's a cheery thought. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think that what are politicians about? They're well, first they're about getting elected, and then they're about getting people to agree with them. That's what they. That's their business. Um, and the image that you portray um, as a politician is very important. I I remember. Somebody asked Ronald Reagan once, do you really think, uh, he said, do you really think being an ex-actor, of course, he was, he was an ex-governor of California as well, but do you think you being an ex-actor that you're really qualified to be, uh, in, be president? And Ronald Reagan said, I don't know how you could be president if you hadn't been an actor somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, a great, a great pleasure to meet you, and uh, nice I'll be, I'll be, I'll be sneaking in and watching uh, Nancy when she's in your course, you know. <laughs> Kevin Peterson, Gary Smaby, two of the many compelling voices of Ollie. Here is a chorus of others. The instructor core, there's one word, passion. They are all full of passion. Because they're not doing it to make the big bucks. They're doing it because they love it. I've taught briefly undergraduates, hated it. Taught graduate students, liked it. Taught, taught postgraduate and postdoctoral students, liked that better. And this is the best experience I've ever had, precisely because of the students. I enjoy more than I ever have learning. So it certainly does up your game when you know that there are people who are listening very closely to what you say and um, you have a very fixed amount of time to present your ideas and it, it needs to be um, educational but it also needs to have some style and you have to be able to tell your story in an effective way. They are just about making this be a really wonderful experience for each and every student. It's not intimidating, it's exhilarating. Well, it, it doesn't get me better than that. This has been In Conversation, the Voices of Ollie. Our thanks to Cal State San Bernardino in Palm Desert, along with communications study professor Lacey Kendall and her media students. This podcast was produced for Ollie by Lou Gorfing. And I am Dr. Arlette Poland.